I'm Richard Dodd, and you're listening to the Ecology Academy podcast. This is a show where we get to talk and learn about all things ecological, including interviews with top ecologists, both employers and employees, those working with ecologists, and also aspiring and inspiring career-seeking individuals setting out to make a difference. The show aims to provide you with insights, advice, and inspiration to help you succeed and excel as an effective ecologist and to make a real difference to our natural environment. Today I'm speaking with Stuart Newson, who is a senior research ecologist in the Population Modelling and Ecology Research Team with the British Trust for Ornithology. He's responsible for survey design and analysis of data from large national surveys of wild bird and mammal populations. Projects include a number of collaborations involving the large-scale analysis of bat and bird survey data with UK and overseas university academics and NGO researchers. He's also been awarded the Marsh Award for Innovative Ornithology, a member of Natural England's Bat Expert Panel and member of UK Avian Population Estimates Panel. A research fellowship on bioacoustics, PhD and MSc supervisor and Norwich Bat Group Committee member. Now, whilst the core of his work has been on birds, he has a personal interest in bats and acoustic monitoring, and in particular, how technology can deliver new opportunities for conservation and provide new ways to engage with larger audiences. Stuart is the lead scientist for the BTO Acoustic Pipeline, which brings cutting-edge sound identification of bats and other nocturnal wildlife to your desktop. So, Stuart, welcome to the Ecology Academy podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me and um, yeah really good to meet you as well yeah and yourself i mean i i think i do remember you from some of the beat um uh, the bat conservation trust conferences and um, this is going back quite a few years now but uh yeah 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 same here yeah excellent now um now Stuart, we start these conversations off with a few innocent questions um so they are just a quick fire round no right or wrong answer at all um, so it's just to delve into sort of the, the hearts and minds of the individual ecologists. So, um, and just a little icebreaker, really. So um, without very, well, with very little preparation, are you ready to begin? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Excellent, excellent. So you can answer as long or as short as you like on these questions at all. You know, so if you want to skip one, you can't. No, you can. Right. You're getting it to you. So uh, first of all, favourite band of all time? We can say artist as well if you prefer. Oh, um afraid it's got to be oh so difficult um <laughs> i think maybe abba abba timeless they're just so timeless excellent have you got yeah. you got uh you've got vivid memories of dancing rounds with abba at a uh, university doesn't yeah uh, yeah yeah a good a few years back yeah <laughs> <laughs> okay now if you had a superpower it could be any superpower at all um what would it be and probably more importantly how would you use it Okay, superpower. I think seeing in the dark. Now, now I'm into bats. It'd be really good to see in the dark. That's a and, good one. Uh, yeah. No, that would be really good. <laughs> Excellent. Um, now this could be a seemingly innocent question, but uh, dogs or cats? Dogs, definitely. Excellent. Yeah. No hesitation there at all. Okay. No. Okay. And if you had to choose, would you spend your guilt-free time either reading a book? watching a film or dancing to ABBA? Uh, not dancing to ABBA because uh, I'm not very good at dancing, I don't think. <laughs> um, I think probably reading a book. Okay, good one. Yeah. Any, are you reading one at the moment? Uh, 
actually, I tend to pick up uh, non-fiction. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, a bit, bit kind of dry. Um, I don't think my family quite understand it. Um, but I'm just reading Neil Middleton's new book, oh, on yes. Social Calls. Excellent. Um, yeah. But, but yeah. So Books, I think. work is life and life is work at the moment, is it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I totally, I totally agree with that. Uh, well, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, in terms of my reading preferences, I think that most of my books tend to be, as you say, non-fiction. Uh, really, to much to the dismay of my daughter, who constantly just wants me to get into Percy Jackson, which, uh, which I, I've, uh, okay, I think yeah, I've, my I've, kids love Percy Jackson. Yeah, they're great. Yeah. They are great books. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> good, good films as well, actually. Good films too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And finally, finally, bats or birds. Oh, I, I knew you'd ask that one. <laughs> so most of my career has been birds. Yeah. So yeah, over what, 25, 30 years I've been working on birds. Um, I think I'm going to break convention here. I'm going to choose both. And I think the reason is, I think I've learned so much from birds, uh, particularly working in big data sets, how to organize surveys, how to analyze big data sets. Yeah that I've then taken to start thinking about bats. So I'm gonna, uh, break convention, I'm gonna choose both, I'm afraid. They're absolutely fine. Yeah, we're like people who think outside the box, that's great. <laughs> great, well, thank you so much for that, uh, Stuart. Um, so um, I, uh, that's given me a little, you know, great insight, and hopefully other people as well into sort of uh, the, the mind of uh, a research ecologist who loves ABBA. If we take anything away from this podcast, it's, a, it's that ABBA yeah. is a, yeah, your favourite okay. band. There we go. Uh, no, and uh, I suppose moving on then. So let's look about your sort of life journey so far in terms of, um, you know, your career as an ecologist. So could you take me back, sort of uh, paint me a picture, uh, say, of... Um, how you got into ecology, why you did, it's a bit about your, your background growing up um, and maybe, and this is all before starting to work for the BTO. So tell me about um, where you were raised then there, Stuart. Okay, so I think, um, so probably my earliest memories when I was about five or six and a family friend took us to a nature reserve and there was a, um, I still remember it, just a kingfisher just perched out in front of a hide and I think it was just that that sparked my kind of inspiration to get into birds. Um, and then every weekend, I'd get my poor parents to drive me to the middle of nowhere. Uh, often my, my older brother, yeah. who wasn't into birds, had to look after me. So we got dropped in places like Cold Point and we'd just spend the day wandering around the marshes. And um, yeah, I think probably fewer parents would do that now, mm -hmm. nowadays, but, um, but that was an amazing time just to kind of learn about, learn about wildlife and particularly birds, birds, my kind of real focus at that point. And this was in, um, you, you, you grew up in Norfolk, was it? Uh, it was in, uh, Essex actually Essex. Mm -hmm. in, um, Clapton on sea. Yeah. Um, uh, so we go to places like Aberton Reservoir and, and uh, Holland Haven, which are really good for migrant birds. Um, so that's how I kind of initially got into it. Um, and then I guess I went through quite a traditional route, I did GCSEs. Um, at that point, I was really into art. Yeah. That was my, my kind of big thing. 
and I um, I applied for art scholarship at quite quite a it's quite an academic school. But I got in on my kind of art ability, so I got a scholarship which kind of paid paid for the the school fees, and it was just a real shock. I think up until that point, I I kind of I did I did pretty well without any effort yeah everything I did I, I felt I got and I went into this school and I was just getting average marks and um so I think that was a really really important thing that showed that I had to work to get what I wanted um and I ended up doing art chemistry and biology a level yeah um and then again it was a real dilemma do i choose biology or do i choose art um to kind of go on for a degree and at that point i i decided i decided biology kind of one and particularly zoology i was most interested in still really interested in birds and uh, but also mammals and kind of the big the bigger stuff uh, less so in plants um so uh, i went on to do a degree in zoology at Bristol University and, and which, um, which year was this then so what, what year are we looking at um, in terms of um, your I kind of wrote it down because my memory is really bad 19 oh I finished it in 1996 so you started in 1993 yeah yeah um and I think I think definitely the hardest thing I've ever done at A levels people will look at me quite strangely when I say that but I think partly it was working on things which were less, it, I was kind of less interested yeah. in, particularly mm-hmm. chemistry. But for a degree, it was it was brilliant. There were uh, really good lecturers, people like uh, Gareth Jones, who I'm sure everyone knows who yeah. works on that. Uh, but a lot of really good lecturers. Um, so going back and, to then, so your choice of Bristol University then. So how um, yeah. uh, um, did you apply for other universities, and why did you choose Bristol if you did uh, look at others? Um, I applied for. I may have applied for more, but I, I remember Bristol was my first choice, and uh, followed by UEA in Norwich, and um, I, I would have been quite happy to go to both. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but I quite liked the um, the course at Bristol. There's a lot of I don't know if it's so much of a traditional. It's quite a traditional university in terms of a lot of um, stuff about um, kind of di- dissections and things that I, th- I thought would be quite interesting. I think it's less less dissections now, and um, but but yeah, I kind of thoroughly enjoyed the degree. And, and it's a zoology, uh, wasn't it? A zoology degree. Yeah, in mm. zoology. Um, but I got to the end and hadn't really thought what I was going to do next. Mm-hmm. So I, I tended, often tended to do that. Uh, so I started working for the Wildfound Wetlands Trust, um, helping to uh, put on radio, uh, satellite tags and radio tags on cormorants. And, um, and then I spent whole summer just chasing radio tag birds around the country trying to find them and not having that much luck so disperse and try to find them but as part of that I met um Bas Hughes who was at WWT at the time and he he managed to set me up doing a initially a research masters on cormorants and then um quite quickly I turned that into a PhD 
Um, and that, that was amazing. Um, I'd spend um, a lot of time just climbing, because I was comparing inland breeding cormorants and coastal breeding cormorants. I spend time going out to amazing offshore islands, places like uh, South Wales and North Wales, um, and at the same time going to inland tree nesting colonies and climbing trees uh, up to cormorant nests, ringing, color ringing chicks. Um, it, was it was really good. And I learned a lot of really important lessons, some which probably less useful now. Um, okay. So well, one really important thing was yeah, I'm when, you climb, when you're climbing up to a tree, yeah. keep your mouth closed because the birds will just uh, crap on you <laughs> and uh, you'll have half digested fish come down onto you. Lovely. So quite quickly, I learned to keep my mouth closed. Uh, probably uh, not, not a kind of lesson I kind of use today, but uh, yeah, I definitely <laughs> learned a lot doing that. Mm -hmm. So in terms of, I mean, yeah, so you, your academic career, for instance, that, um, you know, you've, you've sort of found your passion then, by the sounds of it, that, um, you know, you, you know, you, I was going to say disengaged in A-levels, but, you know, you've more of an ends to a means to get you to university, and then a passion for learning, was it, or um, at, at university, yeah. that drive, drive, drove you? I think after doing A-levels, every decision I've made has been... Um, choosing it because I thought I'd enjoy it most. And I think um, I think that that's really helped helped me. I think uh, every stage of my, I guess, progression through degree and masters and, and PhD and then to a job has been just choosing things you, you're really passionate about. Uh, if you're gonna spend a lot of time doing something, you might as well yeah. uh, try and find something you really enjoy. And what, what 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 particular was it about the thing you enjoyed the most? You know, was it actually the um, you know I'll leave it open to you, but um, the you know was it was it the just the exploration, the sort of curiosity, or was it actually finding an answer that you enjoyed the most, or was it collaboration? I mean, what, what was it about the things you loved um, doing as part of that? I think initially it was uh, the field work got me into it. I really I do really enjoy it, being out in the field and and collecting collecting data that I can then analyze. Um, so by doing that, I feel you really get an understanding of the data. Yeah. If you're just analyzing the data only, it's it's much harder to, to really understand it. Um, so partly the field work, also I, I do like um, analyzing data and coming up with finding answers, things that surprise, mm. surprise me about the data, whatever I'm looking at. Um, and I probably en less enjoy writing it up at the end. Yeah. I think if I could just end there <laughs> and just do that part of it, the field work and find the answer and give it to someone else, that would be ideal. But sadly, Sadly, I have to do that writing bit often. Oh, I, I know what you mean. Yeah, I, it's, 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 yeah. it's the uh, it's the end product. So the, the, I suppose uh, I would say the fine detail, you know, actually. But yeah. it's, I suppose it's um, you know, the analytical part seems to be the most important part to you. Then, so it's the, the it's sort, of, sort of the that um, that journey, that um, unexpected find, I suppose, and problem solving. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, kind of make making sense, and particularly working with big data sets. Yeah. Um, so working working at the BTO now, it's we have access to some really big data sets. So uh, you can imagine it's kind of an ideal ideal place to work. 
Okay, so take us front. So that's it. So your PhD then that was 1997 to 2000, I believe. Okay, yeah. so what happened after yeah. 2000 then? So, um, uh, Stuart. Um, so again, um, <laughs> I think following my degree, I wasn't organised. I hadn't thought at all what I was going to do afterwards, and but I booked a holiday. So that was my that was my the only thing I've kind of thought about. Um, to go to Spitsbergen okay. with my brother. So amazing, amazing time. It was kind of a reward. And also having booked it, I had to written up a PhD by then. Um, after I finished, I think I was a bit kind of single-minded. I only, at that point, I only wanted a job working on seabirds and a job on seabirds that would interest me. Yeah. Um, so there wasn't anything immediate no no jobs advertised so i started working for a computer company initially um trying to pay off all the kind of debts that i've had from being a student and i did that for maybe seven eight months working in london uh, i definitely couldn't have continued to do that but that was really helpful in 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 allowing me to just spend a bit of time away um pay it pay off the kind of a lot of the debt that I'd, I'd accumulated from being a student and then everything after that. Right. Um, and then I applied for a job at the BTO and it was actually for the uh, breeding bird survey organiser. And it wasn't particularly a job that I wanted to do, uh, but I wanted to work for the BTO. And I applied for it and I was told quite quickly, uh, we're not going to offer you this job but um, give us a couple of days. We want to, uh, we like your application and we're gonna just have a think about this and get back to you. And I didn't actually expect to hear in a couple of days. Oops, lost my, lost the light. Sorry. <laughs> technical, oh, Te technical, technical issue there. Te technical issue, <laughs> yeah. Um, so applied for the job. I didn't get it, but I got promised that there might be something else available. And they created a job hmm. for me, um, analyzing, analyzing data. So analyzing breeding bird survey data and survey data and designing surveys. Okay. Um, if, if we just take a step back there then. So in yeah. terms of, I mean, you applied for that job, it wasn't the ideal job for you. I mean, but um, as I say, more the, the intention then was to join yeah. the organization, BTO. That was the sort of goal rather than actually the role itself. Yeah. Um, and I suppose, yeah, the interview, they, they probably thought, I, I don't know how you came across, but you're saying like, well, this may be not the right person for this role, but there's something in Institute we see. I mean, did they, I mean, did they divulge, you know, what that was or, you know, how, um, you know why did they create this role for you? Uh, not, not really. And to be honest, I didn't think I'd, I'd hear from them again. I thought they were just being nice <laughs> at the interview. Yeah. Uh, but within a couple of days, they'd they'd drawn out this this new spec uh, for a job, which was um, it was much more the type of stuff I wanted to do, um, rather than organising a survey. Um, it was actually away away from working with people. I don't I don't think that's necessarily my strength, um, but it was it was kind of analysing data, designing, inputting ideas to things. Um, so yeah, perfect job for me. Gosh, wonderful. And um, so I mean, I mean, 
in terms of then that role itself, I mean, how, how, you know, what sort of things did you get involved with? And um, I suppose leading on to us now, uh, leading on now towards how you set up the, the BTO um, acoustic pipeline. Okay, so bit of an odd journey. So when I started the BTO, everything everything I did was on birds and mainly analysing big big survey data like the breeding bird survey data. Um, so related to survey design, but also analysing the mammal data, which is collected through the breeding mm. bird survey data and producing trends in things like uh, rabbits and brown hares. And I think I've always had a kind of quite a general interest in other wildlife, particularly things that move. I know plants can move, but uh, particularly, I guess, the, the zoology side of things. Yeah. Um, and I think maybe just over 15 years ago, I, um, it's quite, quite strange. I, I got approached to write a chapter on the mammals of the local, uh, local uh, common where I live. And I had an interest in mammals, but I didn't know anything at all about bats. Um, but I thought, how difficult can this be? Exactly, uh, yes. <laughs> and um, I thought, the big stuff, like deer, I can identify those. I'd, I'd done a lot of small mammal trapping in the past, so I was very experienced at small mammal trapping, so that, that was quite straightforward too. Where did you get that experience from, if, uh, Stuart? Uh, so oh, that was going back before my degree, but I continued doing it. Um, so I help people, you know, the, the wetland centre at Barn Elms, the Wildfowl Wetlands okay, Trust yes. Centre. Yeah. I, I did a lot of small mammal trapping there, mm -hmm. just helping people uh, before they develop the reservoirs into the nature reserve. Um, but I just continued. And at the time, my partner worked for the Mammal Society. So uh, I couldn't really escape doing <laughs> kind of mammal things. Yeah. And I think the other the other thing I was, uh, even though I did my PhD on cormorants, I was based in uh, Bristol, uh, the mammal group at Bristol University in Steve Harris's group. Oh, yes. So I was the only yes. person working on birds in a mammal group. Um, so I'd go out help helping to catch foxes and badgers mm. and a whole load of other stuff and, and helping... Um, did a bit of work helping yellowneck mice, Hayden Marsh, Aiden Marsh doing stuff on yeah. uh, yellowneck mice in around the Bristol area. So I kind of had a little bit of interest there. Um, and um, yeah, so going back to sorry, I did, did sidetrack you there. So yeah, returning to, to returning to that um, sort of transition, I say from from, yeah. from birds to sort of, and including bats into um, your roles in BTO. Yeah. And I had to write this publication, local publication. And at that point, I contacted the local back group, Norwich back group. And there's a, a guy there, Sam Phillips, who he works for, well, he worked at the time for a uh, consultancy, I think ecology consultancy. And um, he, was, he was absolutely brilliant. Every weekend when they weren't using detect their detectors, so they had a load of anabats for their company, I'd drive in every on a Friday evening, pick up their whole stash of bat detectors for the company. It was quite a big risk for them, I guess. And I would I would put them out on, on this local column, uh, co common to record bats. And then I'd make sure they were back just as they opened on Monday before they, they tended not to use them over the weekends at that time. 
Um, and I did that for months, months on end. Mm. So it's quite a round trip for me to drive into Norwich, pick up these detectors. Um, but that really got me into the, the sound analysis side of things. Um, and then I think I applied for a British Ecological Society grant, which allowed me to buy a full spectrum bat detector. Yeah. Um, and I started putting that out and then getting into just, just kind of species identification, but mainly, mainly teaching myself. There wasn't really, there's no one at the BTO who's re, who was really into bats and no one apart from the bat group, uh, who, uh, who are kind of really doing, doing that much. Yeah. Um, and then it kind of developed from, developed from there. Um, I, um, I, I made some links with the with UEA and we've got a couple of master students um, and we decided to set up a project, but it came out of a discussion with um, Sam again about the difficulties of leaving bat detectors out in really built up areas and the risks to, to kind of losing them. And um, so I tried to come up with an idea where we could try and survey initially Norwich and my first idea was a bit slightly mad it was to get an old banger car and just uh hide a bat detector on top of it and yeah. just move it around get the students to move it around and leave it out um so this is just just a random car that you'd get yeah, and just just play yeah, so it's not it's moving car, at all a random just, car yeah yeah so that's the first idea the second <laughs> idea which is a bit more sensible was to um we got a little bit of funding for some bat detectors and we then, the master students would then uh, put out a press release information saying um, to encourage people to get in touch with them, um, to then put the bat detectors in their garden, leave them out over a few nights. And by doing that, we got quite an amazing, got it in the local newspapers and things. We got an amazing response from kind of locally. And we ended up um, coming out a survey in every one kilometre square across Norwich. And I think what that really showed to me was there's huge interest for members of the public, people who aren't, who perhaps haven't thought about bats at all. Yeah. Um, and if you make something that's really simple, where they could just borrow a bat detector. And um, I think when thinking about design of any survey, you try and make the reward for people taking part as big as possible. And the reward here was for the students to get back really quickly and tell them this is what we think was recorded in your garden or on your land. Um, so that, that was a kind of real eye-opener. Eye um, so the next ob obvious step was having done Norwich, Norwich and that yeah. work, mm -hmm. I was thinking how can we scale it up it, to a kind of larger area, uh, say to the whole of Norfolk, and Norfolk, it's quite a fed, fairly big county, five and a half thousand square kilometers. Um, so again, we got some funding for detectors and uh, we didn't we didn't have enough master students to cover the whole whole county. So what I thought was if I could set up places that could host a detector, so across the county, perhaps evenly spaced across the county, so anyone within Norfolk would be within say five, 10 minutes drive of a detector they could borrow. Um, that would be a great way. They could borrow the equipment, 
we could get the data back they could just put it in the post we can analyze it um and that that really took off um so we got ama amazing coverage in norfolk um but a lot of that that was really just in my evenings yeah. um thinking how, how do we how do we design this um at one point i had I borrowed loads of laptops. I had seven laptops around me trying to process the data. Uh, we're getting SD cards, you know, kind of the amount of data you can get from from uh, bat survey static static detectors. Um, and I think maybe it's probably about twelve years ago. Uh, I, I kind of was really thinking there aren't any methods that are very quick for processing bat data, and there aren't any that really performed very well mm. it all seemed a bit kind of random in terms of the results you get so you're ending up looking at so many recordings to try and work out what bat species it was so at that point i started working on um actually collaborating with um people in france who are thinking about similar questions for the french national bat monitoring program uh, particularly a guy called yves Barr who based in Paris um, and he, he gave me a lot of support in terms of uh, getting feedback on identification on things and um, but at the same time I started working with him building building classifiers to identify different species of bat. Um, and in terms of that so just take just going yeah. back a step there so you know prior to then you know building these classifiers then you know this was all done manually so um you know just scrolling through um you know hours worth of recordings and just um, identifying manually which species they you know that that's a, the the um assistant would look at and then then putting it down and then that you know so it was just pure manual classification at this point yeah and definitely um when i had anabats it was looking through everything and um but the whole time, I realised if we're going to scale this up, we need we need ways of of saving time on everything. Yeah. We need um, yeah, we we kind of really need ways of processing data quickly. We need to get some good results to minimise the amount of time we're spending checking checking results, needing to check results. Um, so. Um, so I guess about eight years ago, we had what is now the acoustic pipeline, but it was on a on our computer cluster. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't accessible to externally, but it got to a point where we could put folders somewhere and then it would automatically take those folders into somewhere. It would pull out call measurements. It would apply the classifiers that are built. And at that point, it produced a PDF summary of what was recorded. So what we could then do is take that, email it to the person who's taken part in the survey. Um, and with, I guess with caveats that we'd be carrying out further checking of the, the automatic identification later in the season. So we were, we were very careful that to really highlight there could be, or very likely to be errors in what we provide that kind of initial output that initial results but at the same time i thought it's really important to get back to people quickly yeah um i think at that time the the normal thing was to wait until say the winter when you had more time to look at the recordings yeah 
Um, but by that time, you've lost, particularly working with volunteers, you've lost their their kind of interest and enthusiasm. But if you could get back to people within a couple of days with some first results, quite often, certainly some of those people would then go on and survey, take on a lot more. Um, so yeah, I think ev everything I do, it's trying to trying to save time, trying to find ways of coding things to make it simpler at ev every every stage. And the pipeline is, uh, which was released last year, is really just really a, a, a front to what we've developed mm. over quite over many years uh, that allows other people to upload recordings. Okay, before we get onto the yeah. uh, the, sort of the the um, acoustic pipeline itself, then in terms of, um, <clears throat> I mean, you mentioned there a couple of things that's been interesting. So obviously the the building of these auto classifiers, and you mentioned also about coding as well. Is this something that um, you know is it that you you've done yourself, or is it um, a collaboration with um, you know other coders, for instance? Um, so I think I I really built on initial stuff that um, people in France, Eve Bar. They developed some some initial code for um, kind of helping to run the national bat monitoring program in France. So I kind of then built on that, and I had um, I was really lucky at the BTO that I had a um, I applied for a research fellowship that gave me six months to work on just stuff that interested me, which is quite quite rare. Um, so there's a lot of competition internally to get this, but I was very lucky. Get this, but it allowed me to work with people in France to go out there. Um, and initially, we started working on actually the sound identification of bush crickets. Mm, okay, yes. So, um, I think I think everyone who everyone who puts out bat detectors, probably a lot of bat workers, really hate bush crickets because <laughs> they'll just fill up your memory cards. Yeah. But I think for me. I just saw it as an amazing opportunity. Bush crickets quite poorly recorded in their own right. And if I could build them into the back classifiers and identify them as bycatch, it's something free. Mm -hmm. um, and even, even for people who are not interested in bush crickets, being able to say which recordings perhaps just have bush crickets is really helpful. So rather than looking through, okay, it's a dark bush cricket, dark bush cricket, dark bush cricket. Oh, it's a bat. Um, <laughs> It kind of saves saves a huge amount of time in in doing that. Oh, I, I remember um, you know doing it was a bat survey. which is when I was living in in Wales, South Wales, and uh, so I lived in a place called Tongwin Lice. And um, just off Tongwin Lice, there's this huge roundabout uh, called Corriton Roundabout. And on there, we used to go there. It was a sort of a sort of mini nature reserve, and um, went there across there, you know, looking for bats. With great nocturnal displays because um, there's some great woodlands nearby, so that you could see some. Um, you know, large displays of nocturnals flying across. But we went across into Corriton roundabout to, um, you know, listen for what bat species we got. And you're right, it was just, all we could hear was, I think it was long-winged, long-winged conehead, um, you know, crickets all the time across there. And, you know, I didn't know where they were long-winged coneheads at the time, uh, but it wasn't until we got back and played them. And, yeah, I think it was, uh, I forgot the chap's name, Greg. But, um, yeah, he, he sort of introduced me then to the world of... Um, Bush cricket. So you're right. You just it's just those knock and effects. So you know you, you get into one species, but not you, it also throws you onto another species as well. Yeah. So um, ah oh, yeah. So I mean, it does it does bush crickets and, and moths as well. You said. Yeah. So yeah, the bush crickets I think have been. Um, so I've like locally I found pop, new populations of great green bush cricket, which is quite rare in Norfolk. 
but this is through bycatch so people putting out bat detectors to record to find out about bats uh, but i've got a project on guernsey where we found large conehead as a new species for channel Isles. Yeah. we found it on three separate islands again it's through a bat survey as bycatch we found sickle bearing bush cricket another continental species mm. Uh, in an area outside its, slightly outside its range in, known range in Sussex. So this is all through bat surveys, what you could pull out. And bush crickets were the obvious one, because you tend to get more bush crickets recorded than, than bats quite often. Um, and as you mentioned, uh, moths are the other one, which can produce, some moth species produce ultrasound. So I think at the moment, there's, there's definitely a lot more species that I don't know produce ultrasound uh, that I still need to work on. Um, but some, there's one green silver lines, really distinctive calls. So I built those into the back classifier. Um, another one, bird cherry ermine, where I saw the caterpillars, bred them up, uh, very easy to get recordings. They're, they're an amazing moth. They're completely, completely deaf. They can't hear the sound they produce. Um, but every time they fly, they produce it to, to deter bat predation. Right. Mm. Um, so it's very easy to get recordings. You just see them fly. I'd, I'd bred them out um, in a flight kind of cage. Um, and then I could take those recordings and build them into the classifier. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of unknowns there. There'll be a lot of species. Um, and then that got me on to what else can you identify? And quite often I was seeing small mammal recordings in there as well. So that was a, the next group that I really got into. So, yeah, so um, it includes like, like a harvest mouse, dormouse, um, rats as well. Usually. Yeah, I think, I think initially um, I, was, I was feeding garden birds and I was keeping chickens as well. <laughs> and we had a bit of a rat problem. And it was a real eye-opener eye going out with a bat detector. It was just deafening. Wherever you walked, you would just hear really loud, loud rats. Um, so that, that was a kind of real eye-opener. And at that time, I kind of realised that Neil Middleton is working on a, on a book, or he's just starting to work on a book called Is That a Bat? Uh, for Pelagic Publishing. Um, so I collected what I could feed into that. Um, but after we'd finished that, we worked on a, a paper for British Wildlife on the sound, sound identification of small mammals. Mm -hmm. And that was trying to fill in a lot of the other gaps. Um, but that was just re really good fun um, working with, well, Neil Middleton is good fun to work with anyway. Mm -hmm. And uh, Huma Pierce, so again, is, is brilliant, really good. Um, and a lot of that was trying to record captive individuals where there were captive individuals. So going to places like the British Wildlife Centre and leaving static detectors to try and get recordings of things like hazel door mice and, and harvest mice. But also um, I had a licence to, to keep shrews for a short period of time to, from natural England to, to record shrews and other common, common species of small mammal. So I, I dedicated, I'm not sure my wife was terribly impressed, a uh, whole room with terrariums where I'd be live catching individuals. I'd keep them overnight, get recordings. And what I was trying to do is get as many recordings as I could yeah. to understand the range of vocalizations. And um, 
and to then again build those into the back classifiers so when you put back detector out if there happens to be say hazel dormice calling and hazel dormice really good they've got really loud calls they're really vocal i could also identify those as bycatch yeah so um i think for small mammals it's a really new field hardly anyone there's no national acoustic monitoring of small mammals yet um but i think there's a real opportunity particularly for well for dormice yeah. they're really vocal loud calls for shrews which again really loud vocal species and i think for some of the other species as well no i think, uh, I think it's uh, you know as you say you know for you know surveying for for dormice for instance is uh you know, it's quite challenging at times, you know, so living yeah. at small populations, but, you know, any, any additional survey tools, which is like, a, yeah, I mean, acoustic surveying seems, strangely now you say it, quite logical, yeah, really. So, uh, you know, and, and achievable uh, now with the technology. And so um, in terms of, I mean, just, just moving on from, from um, you know, sitting on your desktop and your, your folders there to actually building, scaling up this um, acoustic pipeline into a commercial entity, which it is now. Um, so, I mean, uh, uh, I mean, just give me a few, little bit about the, the timeline there, but also, I mean, we'll go obviously now into what it does and, and why we should be using it. Okay. So the whole thinking about the, the pipeline um, was really kind of going back to some of the bat surveys I've run uh, often it's quite easy to get funding to start a project, but then to get funding to continue it in the long long term is a lot more difficult. Um, or certainly I, I found that there's a lot of interest at the beginning. And with the pipeline, there's no external funding at all or internal funding from the BTO going into it. And what I needed was to set up something that would pay for itself. So I guess working at the BTO, uh, we're quite different than our kind of ambitions are a bit different than say a company that where the main the main outcome is profit what I needed was to be able to to cover it, its costs and that's um, the costs of processing in the cloud which are quite expensive also to be able to provide some level of support and to continue to develop it that's the other really important thing that it needs to continue to improve and develop over time and to extend the functionality of it so that it remains competitive. Um, so that, that was the kind of the business model, not being a business person myself, uh, that's quite a diff different kind of area for me to be thinking about. And I, I guess it's also a bit of a risk for the BTO. Um, we've run it for one year and it more than paid for itself in that first year. Yeah. So that was, that was the most crucial year to get people to want to use it enough to find it valuable to be able to to at least some people to be able to pay to use it um the other thing was i'm i'm really keen to try and make it as cheap as possible um where the data can benefit conservation so i guess again working for an ngo like the bto and we, we may need to think about the, the cost, our costings in the future, but at the moment it's cheaper if people are happy to um, share the data with us. That was the kind of decision. Are people happy to share the data? Even if they're a commercial company and, and able, sometimes then obviously not able, it needs to be, the data needs to remain confidential. 
Um, but if they're able to, then it's quite a lot cheaper for people to use it. Um, so yeah, that that was the the kind of thinking. And it's, been, and it's been up and running for just about a year now, you say? The, 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 yeah, the, just uh, over, over a year. Yeah. And I think during that time, it's processed, I think, about 60 terabytes of recordings. So there's been, I think, maybe 30 million bat identifications mm. and a similar number of bush crickets, maybe 100,000 small mammal recording, uh, kind of mammal identifications. Um, and... I think over that time, I've also had projects which have allowed me to work on, um, initially my focus was UK, but to, to work on kind of wider European bat sound identification. Um, I've had one really big project in uh, an area called Polisia, which, um, so we had three years of the project um, working in, fortunately it's come to an end, you'll find out in Ukraine and Belarus mm -hmm. um, so deploying bat detectors so working with organizations on the ground to deploy bat detectors across a hundred thousand square kilometer area so this is massive data set um, so it gave me an opportunity to to work on things like greater nocturne and pond bat and kind of a much wider suite of species also spend time working on uh, I've got a PhD student now working on sound identification of small mammals in Belarus and Ukraine uh, they've actually shift, shifting their field work outside those at the moment <laughs> so you might you might expect for, for, um, yeah, for perhaps we've got a, lot, a lot of data for that area mm. um, and also working on kind of bush crickets which is really difficult as a couple, couple of people in the world who can identify some species of the bush cricket from their their sounds. Um, so I'm being really careful in uh, when I can speak to these people that I don't I don't annoy them or send them too many emails. Um, but uh, uh, and as a consequence of that project, which is part of a endangered landscape partnership, I've now got um, six other projects in other countries from Portugal to um, the Danube Delta to the um, kind of Georgia uh, one of the Cairngorms so and all this is about providing infrastructure to support bat surveys in these countries to be able to provide well the pipeline for that for them to be able to upload recordings to make it a lot easier for processing processing bat recordings like that. Okay, so, so this is like a, in one way a two-way sort of um, uh, business model. That um, that um, obviously, the, uh, if I'm a user, I you know I can put my data onto the you know, onto, you know upload my data. I get uh, back um, an analysis of the data that was provided, uh, and equally so, if I agree to it, then that I, I'm also feeding into actually making this pipeline a, a, a lot more sensitive as well, and you know a better acoustic tool. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so those those recordings will will then feed feedback. Um, obviously, you've got the the data on what was identified where. Um, you've got the recordings where we find errors. We can then build those back in to the classifier to then improve it. Um, so there's there's quite a lot that we've got planned. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of, a long list of things that I. Um, 
we're kind of working on with the pipeline. Some things are going to happen quite quickly. Other things that might take a year or two, um, but we're just at a kind of one particular point in the development at the moment. In terms of that, that, that learning exercise then, you know, in terms of improving the classifiers then, so is that something that he's done, I mean, I mean, excuse my ignorance on this, but you know, in the, the learning, is that sort of fed in by yourself, so a manual exercise in terms of improving the classifiers, or is it actually a bit of AI in there, actually a bit of self-learning uh, by, the, uh, by the classifiers themselves? So at the moment, it's, it's quite, quite manual. Um, so what I've, what I've been doing is continually trying to collect recordings, particularly for some of the more cryptic species. So trying to, so this last weekend, I was out at a, a Brantsbat roost, recording in the vicinity of that as, um, to try and get additional recordings that I could then mm. use to see what, what is the performance for identifying Brantsbat. So continually collecting those for cryptic species for other species which are more straightforward to identify when there's kind of clear errors um i then label those actually say what they really were build those in build a new classifier and then it just slowly iteratively improves over time um well that's that's where we are now but one of the things i'm really keen to develop is a verification portal which mm. is part of the pipeline and um several reasons for this it'll make the it'll allow for verification to be carried out within the pipeline so we need to give this some thought who who do we assign as experts um how do we make the data that can be shared accessible more more accessible so it's trying to improve the quality of the data that we output and in the long term i'm really keen that that feeds into say local reporting and national reporting mm -hmm. at the moment um, because you need you need that auditing. It's a really important part of the process. Uh, the data isn't feeding directly into, so we're not passing on a copy directly to the local record centre because there will be errors. And um, we're really keen to build that kind of mechanism. Uh, but I think for environmental consultants, um, so over the past year, I've spoken to many companies about their their approach to, to auditing, verifying species identification. And there's no, there's no kind of standardized way of doing it. Yeah. There's very different uh, levels of, kind of rigor. And um, so one thing I'm really keen to do is to try and uh, provide tools. So one thing I've been working on with colleagues is a, it's just a simple R Shiny app that will take the pipeline results and then um, look for the recordings that are named and say move them into species folders based on the identification and that means you can rather than searching for individual recordings which is really time consuming you can look through all the identifications which was assigned to say barbacell in one go um, so you've got efficiencies in terms of save time saving um, it'll also allow you this this little shiny app uh, allow you to do things like if you've got something like say common pipstrel where you might have say a couple of, a couple of hundred thousand recordings it'll randomly select say a thousand samples thousand recordings put them in a folder and then you can check those to quantify the error of the identification right. 
Um, so, so you could then use that to justify if there's like two errors out of a thousand. So rather than checking or scrolling through, I don't know how many, I know some people do this, scroll through the whole data set. It's really inefficient. But when you start thinking about it in terms of some of these time, time savers, um, so as I say, initially we're going to make a uh, an R Shiny app where you don't you don't need to know R at all. It will be running a bit of code and then it'll ask you questions about what you want. Do you want to take a random? Is it a common speech? Do you want to take a random sample? What's your sample? Mm -hmm. What probability? You might put put things into two folders based on higher probability and lower probability for checking. You might want to check identifications where nothing was identified in it, a sample of those, but you don't want to check everything. You might want to check a random sample. So I think one thing I'm really keen to do is is work with companies to develop, well, hopefully make, make the pipeline more useful, save more time, but also provide these tools that provide more, I guess, more robust and repeatable standardized auditing uh, that will save people a lot of time. No, absolutely. Yeah, I know. I can so I can I can fully understand the you know the need for this because it's uh, you know as you're saying getting that robust data is is going to be important. Yeah. Not you know for uh, obviously the consultants to ensure that they have that that confidence that um, what they're providing is correct and and unbiased as well. Because I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of biases we feed into sort of our results. And it's taking that bias away or minimizing the bias um, when we're actually providing results and much, much, much better outcomes for, um, you know, conservation at the end of it. Yeah, that's that's the aim anyway. Yeah. So but I think. Oh, sorry. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I say, well, I, I'm just very interested. So let's run through the, the B2 acoustic pipeline. So you may mention it was aimed at, you know, you know. A commercial entity, so you know, environmental or you know, ecological consultancies, for instance, who got large data and want to analyze that. So, run us through. Um, so, how we, you know, what what do we need to do, and um, in order to actually then provide you with the data? Okay, so I guess it's worth explaining. There's two parts to the pipeline. There's a, a desktop app which you uh, where you register for a pipeline account first. Um, you can then download this app, which you put in your computer, and all that app does is manage the uploading of recordings to the cloud where they're processed. Um, what this will do is, if you're using a bat detector that um, records location, embeds it within, uses Guano to embed it in the WAV file, it'll pull that automatically, and then it'll use that location to then decide what classifier do I push it through. So if someone, say, from got a project in Tasmania, say, oh, I have got a project in Tasmania. If someone uploads it from Tasmania, um, it'll push it through a classifier that I built for, that considers the sweeter species you've got in Tasmania. But kind of more local level, if someone uploads from Belgium, it'll consider that the broader suite of continental species you get there. If you upload from Scotland, it won't be considering Becksteins. And um, so, it's it's a way of trying trying to get the the best the best results, kind of regionally. Uh, the pipeline also flag anything that's unexpected for that particular county. Mm -hmm. So if you upload a recording of Liza's bat, say, and there's very few records for the county, it'll flag that with a warning in the results that um, a kind of caution that 
you need to kind of check this very carefully. It could be the species, but uh, it could be it could be an error. So we're trying to make it as easy for people as possible to, um, or ho hopefully provide some interpretation. Um, so what people would generally do, use this desktop app, it'll upload recordings to the cloud, and then uh, we have computers working in the cloud processing the data. And as soon as they're finished processing, you'll be emailed to say it's finished processing and you can look in and uh, download at the moment a CSV uh, of the results that have been recorded. Um, I think the other thing that's quite useful is if you've got a company where you've got lots of field workers mm -hmm. collecting data for the same project, what you can do is those people can register for an account. We can set up a project where those individuals can upload to, it can be a, a private project if it's confidential or it could be a, a shared project. Um, upload to that and then you could assign project organizers who can see everything that's been uploaded to that project um, and the results as the data is being processed. Um, but I guess an added advantage of that is um, you can potentially store the recordings in the cloud and get them back in a standardized format. So I know myself I'm quite careful to use a kind of set folder hierarchy but you know if you have yeah. different field workers they do different things, different naming conventions. So this gets the data into, it makes it a lot simpler when you come to look at the data, it gets rid of those problems. Um, I'm trying to think what else, but it's also really helpful having projects if you've got a volunteer project. So um, I've got a project on Guernsey and some of the other islands where we've got a few hundred people uploading recordings remotely. So these are volunteers who they register for, for an account, then they can upload recordings directly to the project. Yeah. They get their results back within a few hours. Uh, all the recordings are stored in the cloud. And then when I've got more time, I can pull back all those recordings for auditing, carrying out further checking, um, and then feeding back any errors and of improving the classifiers. Yeah, no, I think it's I think it's a great tool. I mean, I, I say I've had a quick look around um, the sort of um, the you know the, the, the platform itself, or sort of the website itself. And um, you know, I suppose in one way, one one things I suppose I'm going to uh, you know look at really in terms of getting the best data out. In terms of obviously you know yeah. good data in, good data out. So in terms of in tips, in terms of um, quality recordings, for instance. So how do we get the best recordings to you? Okay, that's, that's a really important point. And I think having worked with quite a lot of consultancies this year and been sent recordings from a lot of consultancies, I, I don't think that, I think there's quite, quite a few that perhaps don't think about the, the quality of the recordings they're getting. And I think one of the most important things you can do is, um, doesn't depend on the detector you use, uh, it's more about placement of the detector. And um, I think the ideal is to pole mount your microphone or detector, if it's something like a song meter mini bat, um, say raise it up nine foot. But importantly, don't try and don't try and hide it. I think don't try and hide it within vegetation or put it next to a wall or flat surfaces like that. If you do that, you'll get quite often horribly distorted recordings. And that will then influence the performance of the classifier. 
the pipeline, but it will also influence how far you're going to get with identification uh, manually, particularly for, like if you're thinking about the my myotis, some of the more cryptic species, where if you start to get distortion, uh, particularly at the, the start and the end of the calls, it's, it's difficult enough, but you, you kind of, I don't know, it, it's, it's one of the most crucial, crucial things really. Yeah. Um, I think the problem is um, kind of related around the, the security equipment, leaving it out and not making it really obvious. But I think there's things that can be done to just get that microphone away from any flat surfaces, away from vegetation. Uh, it only needs to be, say, a metre and a half away, and you'll get considerably better recordings. Because I certainly know that um, you know if we're dealing with um, you know potential roosts, for instance, you know we're often yeah. often a surveyor maybe you know handheld uh, holding on to the detector themselves, and it yeah. may even be I mean I'm, I'm sure there be a few uh, yeah, I'm sure there may even be only a few meters away from like a solid surface there. So I imagine you're going to yeah. get some sort of distortion coming from the bat yeah. into the recording if you're that close. I think there's two things there. One, holding a detector, and you're you're then a flat surface. So if you're using an ecometer touch, it looks completely mad. But if you could extend it on a on a lead on a pole on your on your back higher than you, get it away from you, the quality of recordings you'll get will be much better. Um, but there's another another really important point uh, to do with emergence, and um, what you'll find if you record directly at emergence. And seen a lot of, I've spoken to a lot of people who've been doing this. So they put the detector right at the point where the bat comes out. Mm -hmm. What you'll get is um, very atypical calls, very elevated calls that are not very typical of a free flying bat. If you can move your detector away, say eight, even kind of eight meters away from the emergence itself, you'll start to get much more typical calls of free flying bats. Yeah. Uh, it'll be easier for you to identify when you come to manually look at them, but also it'll be easier for the pipeline to identify. Because, um, yeah, you look at things like Noxure, they can produce really short duration, extreme calls that don't really look like Noxure if you're recording at the point they're, they're coming out. I also remember again my days back in Wales. Uh, that's um, you know it, down in Cardiff Bay. Um, we had um, uh, I mean I was pretty lucky that um, we had you know the three species of pipistrelle uh, down there at certain times of the year. And uh, remember doing some emergence surveys of we, we knew them were enthusiasts uh, in in these the, these roosts, and yet when we heard them coming out, they were like, almost like sopranos. Yeah, you know, because because yeah. because uh, we were so close to um, I imagine now, you know, so close to the roost yeah. that um, they just the, um, the the frequencies were elevated. Yeah, I think I think if you're recording at emergence, you're you're really increasing the the challenge of identification. You make you're making your job a lot harder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it was just as we just went, you know, you can see that pattern go. It started, I feel like, like, you know, almost like 52, 53 uh, kilohertz, yeah. and then all the way down to like 38, yeah. you know, as it traveled away from the roost itself, or uh, it was a second de detector, uh, surveyor a bit further yeah. away. Yeah. Interesting. So, in terms so, um good quality data in terms of, uh, okay, the um, obviously one and a half meters above ground or something like this, and not on a protected vertical surfaces, horizontal surfaces. Um, 
Call duration then. So sorry, recording. So I mean, um, it, it, I, I see on your website it mentions about a certain length of call that you analyse. Yeah. I think I think that's really related to what's optimum for the classifiers that I work on, and because I think a lot a lot of kind of other options out there will will tell you what the the most the dominant species is. So if you have a common pit recording that has a, say, a weak barber cell, it won't identify the barber cell. Uh, what the pipeline tries to do is identify the multiple species in there. But the longer the recording you get, um, the more challenging it becomes to identify multiple species because potentially you have more, you have more species the longer it gets. And um, we've generally found if you could produce recordings of about five seconds, that's the optimum performance. Um, so what we've done is, I think the ideal is for people to set their bat detector to define the maximum length to be five seconds. Mm -hmm. That's that's the kind of ideal. I think the other advantage is, it means that your recordings are much more standardized. If you're interested in bat activity, comparing lots of five second recordings rather than some that might be I know 25 30 seconds whole kind of range if you don't define that maximum you get such a range of lengths which means that you're if you're interested in bat activity quantifying that it, it just adds more noise to it so i think there's added advantages of using five seconds um but if people upload long recordings what the pipeline does it automatically splits the recording to be five seconds anyway um, so it does complicate auditing a bit, bit more because mm. then you get an identification for the section. Um, so, yes. yeah, we just we just standardise the the way we record, um, you know, the, the bats yeah. they use and gadget. So I, I think a lot of other options also use have an optimum of five seconds, even if they process longer recordings. Uh, it does become increasingly more difficult. And in terms of, we mentioned about the recordings themselves. Now, um, it, 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 what format is do you take the recordings in? Okay, so uh, they're WAV files. So it needs to be recorded on a full spectrum detector. They need to be WAV files. Um, so uh, it, it, we won't be it won't be able to process uh, like zero crossing recordings or frequency division. Um, and then it needs to be sing single channel, so not multi-channel. I, I don't think many that many people use multi-channel now. Mm -hmm. I think in the past they did. And lastly, it will process time expansion recordings, but they need to be converted to real real time first. So you'll you'll get an error message saying they need to be converted. <laughs> so it uh, gives you a user error uh, then, yeah, before, yeah. before you yeah. Um, but I think also if you've if you're using a detector where uh, it has an inbuilt GPS, I think it's really useful to use that to embed the location within the WAV file, because um, the the pipeline will pull that automatically. And if you don't if you don't use the GPS, then um, it'll it'll add you'll have to add it in manually. You'll have to define what that is. Okay, and in terms of the um, the choice of detector, I mean, are we limited to a certain detector, or is it a wide range of detectors you can actually use? Then, I think any any full spectrum detector, 
I think I think amongst those, there are some that are kind of um, not my favourites. Um, <laughs> so I, I think I don't know if this is fair to say. I think there's more challenges with the audio off recordings, particularly the. I don't feel the microphone performs so well at high frequency. So uh, it's fine for nocturnal pipistrels, but it doesn't matter if you lose the start of the call. But for my Otis, I think it becomes a lot more, mm -hmm. a lot more critical. Uh, but again, if you pull mountain audio off, you can get the most out of it. If you if you hide it in, if you put it in a plastic bag, as you quite often see on their website, uh, that's one of the worst things you can do and hide it in vegetation. Yeah, that's a bad idea. Um, I think also with the the Batlogger recordings, uh, Batloggers, I think with the, the more recent ones, you can change the gain. Um, but before before that, uh, I think it's with the, the A plus and some of the older ones, uh, you can't adjust gains. So you quite often get very overloaded clip recordings uh, where it's very difficult to pull good measurements from just overloaded the bats come too close if, if i saw that on a uh, a song meter detector i'd change the game but you don't you don't have the option to do that with about some of the bat bloggers the older ones yeah okay uh, so yeah so in, 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 interesting then so obviously it's knowing your bat detector knowing the limitations of it um, um, and, and may may influence your future purchasing decisions. But uh, it, okay. at the moment, you you know, Audio, Batlogger, Piersonic, um, Peterson, yeah, Tiddly, Wild Love Acoustics, all those detectors, yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Uh, and and how, how would someone find out about, you know, the optimum settings then for these ones? And, you know, is it something that you put together or is it something that really, you know, as the user, they should uh, be able to find out themselves? Um, so we've put together a, a, a manual which people can download on the website, which um, anything that's a bit unusual, so um, certainly anything where like the default settings are not very good for identification, we've kind of made a note of that. Um, so as an example, the, the Titley Chorus, um, they're built in, um, I guess a high, a kind of high pass filter. They scrub everything below about 10 kilohertz. So <coughs> that's that's really good for, for bat identification. You get really clean looking recordings. But if you're interested in small mammals, as we are with a pipeline, it it uh, with bird bird sounds, it scrubs the lower part but leaves the upper harmonics right. start to look on their own like small mammals. So you get if you use that the default setting. Um, You'll get more misidentifications of small mammals. So the, we've kind of made made a note of anything that's a bit unusual like that. Right. Okay. Um, in um, I'm sorry, but in terms of I mean, you've been very generous with your time. Um, I'm, in terms of okay, the the sort of duration. So we upload, you know, we've done recordings. We upload them onto the acoustic pipeline. Pipeline. So what's the sort of turnaround time then? So in terms of um, you know um, analysis then. So I'd say it's normally normally within an hour. It can can take longer. So um, the time it takes to return it will depend on the volume of other people who have uploaded. Cause it'll be in a queue. So at the moment um, we say well, we we guarantee within a couple of couple of days. 
but normally it's within, well, it can be very quick if there's not much being uploaded at that particular time, or it could be an hour. Um, but you can set up multiple uploads. So if you've got many folders, you could set each each set up to upload and queue one at a time mm -hmm. and then just leave it. So it'll, it'll upload and then process and return the results. I think it's, uh, you know, to, it, let's put it this way. So that's a lot quicker than actually, you know, the manual identification process that uh, we've used to, we're used to in a, in a few years ago. Yeah. That, uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, I think really that's not, well, it's, it's not not very efficient. No, not of, at all. No, things, no right. I, I think there's a lot of things that are missed and uh, maybe uh, um, not recorded correctly either. So, uh, you know, uh, but... Uh, yeah. um, and in terms of finding out about this, this um, the Acoustic Pipeline, so um, where can people go to actually find out a bit more about, well, more about this um, the, the programme itself? So I think probably the easiest thing to do is if you do a search for BTO Acoustic Pipeline uh, in Google or any web search, you'll, you'll find it quite easily. Um, but I think the other thing to say there, it, um, for every person that registers, you, you're able to upload 100 gigabyte for free to test out. So I think it's really worth anyone just trying, trying it out and comparing the results with what other, what kind of their approach at the moment to see if it'll save them, save them time. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, so I think, I think that's probably, yeah, if you do a search for BTO Acoustic Pipeline, it's quite easy to find. And then you register for an account and, um, you can then download the app, which will allow you to upload recordings. Great. Well, I'll also put in a link to, um, to, to the website as well. Uh, so the, yeah, the, the, yeah, so within the show notes themselves. So that's fantastic. Uh, um, in terms of. I mean, you mentioned a lot about what you're working on um, at the moment, and uh, you know, future projects. So it seems seems to be you're not you're not exactly uh, you know you're twiddling your thumbs uh, where you are at the moment. There's a lot going on. Um, so what what's the next part of um, your journey then? So um, uh, Stuart, then um, I think it's quite a few things I'd like to do this year. So um, I'm working on a um, a book book with Neil Middleton and and Huma Pierce at the moment on the sound identification of terrestrial mammals in Britain and Ireland. So this will cover everything from like big stuff from deer down to kind of pygmy shrews. Uh, and I'm really keen, I think we're, we're about chapter five in at the moment. So we've made a good start, yeah. but I'm, I'm really hoping, well, it'd be really nice to try and get a big bulk of that written by the end of the year. Um, so that's one thing. Um, I think other things we're we're extending the pipeline to to add some other species groups. So I work with a colleague of mine, Simon Gillings, who's been working on bird sound identification for quite a long time. So one of the things we're we'll be extending the pipeline to also identify nocturnal birds. So I think in the first instance it'll be um, European owls and nightjar and woodcock and things like that. Um, and I guess the last thing I'm, I'm, I'd like to cr try and crack this year is, um, so at the moment, the pipeline, if it, I, if it finds social calls, it'll assign those to, to hopefully the right species. So if there's lizards about social calls, 
but at the moment the results don't say it's a social call it'll just assign it to to Liza's bat or um, what I'm really keen to do is to to split that up so it'll so it'll also return an identification for for those um, I don't know whether that's just me being interested in social calls. Yeah. I don't know what the what the kind of interest is or how useful it'd be. I kind of hope with Neil Middleton's work on this and his new book, it'll kind of get people more interested. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's more something I'd, I'd quite like to do. Ah, so you know, so that's 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 enough to keep you busy then for a few months. Yeah. Uh, should be should be yeah. all right <laughs> yeah. um and this one final question we ask um so all our um, all the people on the podcast themselves is um you've had a wonderful career so far you know and um, in terms of maybe looking back at that early part of your career you know sort of advice you'd either give yourself or maybe uh, a new ecologist coming through about the the roots open to them as an as, as an ecologist um, what what sort of a career tips would you give or advice could you give them um, to those people? Um, I guess there's a couple of things. One, one I've always tried to do, and it's kind of worked out okay in the end. Sometimes it's been, I've had kind of periods where there hasn't been a kind of clear transition or a clear, I haven't had a clear idea of where my career path is going but I've tended to make decisions based on what I think I'll enjoy the most. Um, uh, as, as long as I've got enough money to, to kind of live on and not starve, that's, the, that's my kind of criteria. Um, so, I, and I'm really pleased I've done that. It's kind of led me to, to work with some, I think some really, really amazing people, really great people uh, to work on things that really interest me and I'd, I wouldn't change that. I think that's a really good, if you can do that, if you can work on things and make decisions on what would I like to spend my, my time doing? Because so when you have a job, it's, it's a big part of your life. It's a big part of your time. And if you can enjoy what you're doing, it makes such a big difference. Oh, no, no, I, I, you know, yeah, I totally agree. You know, there's, there's this, there's this fantastic book yeah. by Marcus Buckingham called um, uh, "Love and Work," and he mentions something very, very similar to what you're mentioning there about um, well, he calls them red threads. So if you can find a red thread that you can do every day, something, something you love doing every day, and that's the most important part. Every day, it could be for a minute, it could be five minutes, it could be for hours, but finding something you love every day. Um, I think you will have a life fulfilled. So, uh, yeah, I think that's great yeah. advice. Uh, there, I think the other thing is, get if you get to a point where um, you're starting to lose interest. Um, I know, I know myself. Like I, I've been working on birds for a long time. And I was working on a lot of the same things every year. So, producing trends, producing like government indicators for birds, and um, if you get to the point where it's feeling a bit stale or it's not really what you want to be doing then that's a point to start thinking um, where, where would, what would I like to be doing? And then working back from there, how can I change my, change my job, change my career to try and either get the skills that you need to do that or get a bit of funding to try and start doing something. Um, and some, that kind of first bit is really, I think, hard work, mm -hmm. particularly if it's, slightly different field so for me bats were it's not completely different than birds but it's quite a different different area 
um, yeah, it just takes takes a bit of time. No, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I say it's just that 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 thing you love doing. So you know, we're really being problem solving. So it doesn't matter whether it be birds, bats, butterflies, and so forth. It's, it's still that problem solving. And uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, open yourselves up to uh, like yeah, those interesting career conversations. So whether it be hopefully with your, your the same employer, so don't need to, you don't need to jump ship uh, between different companies. You know, there there is that lateral transition you could do. But um, yeah, wonderful. So yeah. I mean. You've been, as you say, so generous with your time, and so and thank you for putting up with that. And by the looks of it, we're on the, one of the hottest days of the year, and you're in a, a bit of a sweat box up there in your I'm, attic as well. I'm in like a, it's like an attic. There's a tiny, tiny window, and yeah, it's it's quite sweltering. But. I see. Well, you, you're glowing, Stuart. There we go. So, but uh, <laughs> yeah. um, uh, well, I'll, well, thank you so much. So, Stuart Newson, thank you for joining me on the Ecology Academy podcast. It's a pleasure. Okay, thank you. Thanks. If you enjoy our show and want to help, then please click on the subscribe button and rate us on your favourite podcast player, as that's how you can inspire ecologists in the making, help retain great talent, and provide insights of our industry to a much wider audience of why ecology really does matter. Thank you. And remember, learning is a lifelong endeavour. So stay curious, be adventurous, and build bridges for others to cross.